Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Friday, August 21st, 2015. Don't stone me. We're going to have to invoke another light edition today. And there's a reason for that. It's a pretty good one, too. I'll explain in a second. It has nothing to do with plumbing, though. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to put things back into context, use sound hermeneutics. Christ-centered theology, (laughs) proper distinction of law and gospel in order to compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says. Now, I feel like I've fallen into a rut or a pattern here. We've had to have light episodes on, uh, you know, three successive Fridays, and my apologies. The reason for today's invoking of the rarely used two light episodes in one week is, well, it's my 27th wedding anniversary, and my wife and I are going out <laughs> for the evening. So I hope that you will grant me a little bit of forgiveness, but I've lined up some good sermons for you uh, today. We're going to be listening to uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. This is the uh, host congregation of the 2015 Pirate Christian Radio Conference, and we're going to be listening to his uh, you know, exegeting of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from the Gospel of Luke. And then we're going to switch gears and we're going to uh, listen to uh, uh, Pastor Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, as he exegetes his way through the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 51 through 69. And then we're going to head over to... Uh, uh, Mark Bestuel's uh, uh, Calvary Lutheran in, uh, I think it's Elgin, Illinois, and we're going to uh, be listening to him as he exegetes the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 35 through 51. That will make up today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. There will be no commercial interruptions, and so I hope that you find this edifying. I found all three of the sermons to be just absolutely fascinating, and uh, we will go ahead and get started without any further ado. Here is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and his sermon on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from the Gospel of Luke. Here we go. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, Jesus ends this fantastic story and parable of the Pharisee and tax collector's prayers with this conclusion, with this punchline. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now, this is one of the few times that we see the word justification in the Gospels, and this is especially jarring to us because this word, justification, is a legal word. It's a word that you would use in the courtroom. To be justified is to be declared righteous by a judge. We might think of, I think as close as we can get, is the idea of being acquitted or of being pardoned. Do you know the governors of of all the states and the president of the United States have this authority to pardon people? They always do it at the end of their terms where they can't get in too much trouble. (laughs) And they pardon all their buddies and they get to go out of jail. Now, when a person is pardoned, their crimes are erased. And, and, And even more than that, you're restored. 
If you, for example, commit a felony, you, you, your citizenship status has changed. You can't vote and things like this. But if the governor or if the president pardons you, then you're restored as a citizen. You can vote again and all the other rights of a citizen. Now, the word justification is like that, but it's even more than that. When the Bible talks about being justified, it doesn't, it, it doesn't only talk about taking away or covering the sins that we've committed, but it is an application to us and to our name, the righteousness and perfection of Jesus. Now, I've heard people define justification this way, just as if you'd never sinned. And that's catchy, but it's only the first part of justification. It's also just as if you had perfectly kept God's law like Jesus did. That application, that imputation of the righteousness of Jesus is what it means to be justified. Now, I think the best verse for this teaching is 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says this, For our sake He, God the Father, made Him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin." so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is a truly stunning thing, that you, dear saints, have the righteousness of God. It's, this, this is more than the righteousness of Adam and Eve before they sinned. It's, 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 it's overflowing. It's, it's, it's more than that. It's the perfect obedience of Jesus. Everything that he did right and everything that he never did wrong, this is given to you. Now, this is a mind-blowing truth of the Scripture. And even more mind-blowing is that the Bible teaches that we sinners have this righteousness, this perfection applied to our account, not by earning it, not by working for it, not by paying for it, but it, it comes to us purely as a perfectly free gift from God that we are justified not by our works or our efforts, but by faith and faith alone. Now, this is the great theme of the entire Bible, but with great clarity, we can hear Paul preaching it in Romans 3. This is Romans 3:21 and following. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as to be a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. So that justification is the victory of Jesus on the cross, His death and His resurrection being brought to you, to your name, and this is truly life-changing stuff. When, when, when this gets a hold of your heart, this teaching grabs a hold of you, you can't look at the world or the Bible or yourself or God or death or other people or anything else the same. It changes everything. That when we believe this promise of Jesus, we have it. We are declared righteous. This doctrine of justification is what the Reformation was about. Dr. Luther always was saying stuff like, the doctrine of justification is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. It's central, not only in the Scriptures, but also in our teaching. But here's the thing. This, again, is courtroom language. This is what, this is the, justification is the kind of thing that you would expect to hear if we were talking about a person who went to court. Something like this. Two men went to the judge to plead their case. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood before the judge with confidence and boasted of his innocence and even more in his goodness. And then the tax collector, a real scoundrel, stands at the back of the courtroom. All the evidence of his crimes is known by everyone. And he's crushed with all the wrongs that he's done. And he, he, he can do nothing but plead guilty and beg for mercy. And then after the judge hears these two court cases, he's going to make some sort of declaration. Now, that's the kind of parable that you expect to hear with the punchline, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. But look, Jesus is not talking about two men going to court. He's talking about two men going to church. 
These two men are not standing before a judge and a jury. They are standing before God. And these two men are not making a closing argument in a court case. They're praying. Now, this is important. If you want to have a sense of what's happening when you come to church, when you are gathered here in this place, then this is a very important connection to make. The divine service is a court case. This is an outpost of the heavenly courtroom. Now, I think this is, this is a helpful thing to have on, on all sorts of really kind of basic questions. Like, if we have, if we're having trouble figuring out what clothes to wear to church, then we ask, what, what clothes would I wear when I go to court? <laughs> and that answers the question. Or when we have questions about why when we come to church, are we always standing up and sitting down? Well, you see the same thing when you go to a courtroom and the judge comes in the room and the bailiff says, all rise or please stand. I don't know exactly what they say. And everyone stands. The same thing happens when we read the gospel lesson. We stand as Jesus speaks to us. Or people stand in court to address the judge. Or they stand to hear the verdict read. And so we stand to pray and to hear the absolution. Now you can see if a church has lost its understanding of the doctrine of justification when the manners of the church service look a lot less like the manners of a courtroom and more like the manners of a Friday night concert. You see? But this manners business is just a side note. The the real thing that we want to get at is that when we come to church, we are standing before the judge, the judge of the universe, and we are entering into a trial. And just like every earthly trial, this trial begins with a pleading. How do you plead? And you've got two options, guilty or not guilty. And these are the two options that Jesus has put before us in the parable. You've got the Pharisee option, and you've got the tax collector option. You can stand with boldness and confidence, and you can plead your own goodness, not guilty. Or you can bow down in humility, beating your chest, and say, guilty as charged. Now, please listen carefully. You and I are naturally inclined to the Pharisee option. Your sinful flesh, and mine too, wants to stand before God in the strength of your own works, your efforts, your goodness. Now, you know about this amazing thing. You've seen this over and over that when you go and you ask people if they'll go to heaven when they die, almost everybody says yes, and when you ask them why, they say, because I'm a good person. But what you ask them about all of your sins. And you know that there was a good reason for every one of them. And this is true for you. Now, can you think of a sin that you have committed this week that you have already not, that you have not already crafted an excuse for? <laughs> I mean, think about that. It's an amazing thing. That as soon as our conscience wants to charge us as guilty, we start making excuses for ourselves. Well, they cut me off. <laughs> they started it. They deserved it. I earned it. Everybody needs a little break. Nobody was hurt. I meant well. You can't do everything. Nobody's perfect. They should get a job. Am I my brother's keeper? Do you know this constant conversation that's happening in your heart? This, my friends, is the Pharisee option. This is the not guilty option. This is the work that your sinful flesh is constantly busy with, and it is the work of self-justification, of defending your own goodness, of not letting any sin stick to your name. Now, we know we're Christians. We know that we should choose the tax collector option, that we should that we should plead guilty before the Lord, but the constant conversation of our own hearts is excuses and concessions 
and hiding and justifying ourselves. And this is bad. When we go this route, when we plead not guilty, we have Moses and Jesus himself standing there to accuse us, preaching the law to us, holding up the mirror of the Ten Commandments which crushes us. When we plead innocent, then all the evidence to the contrary is gathered. And what a frightful thing this is to imagine. And this plea of innocence is overturned. And we are condemned as sinners. And we are sentenced to death that lasts forever. So that for our own good, Jesus puts before us the other option, the example of the tax collector. The tax collector, the worst of sinners, the person surely to be condemned in court. The thing about this tax collector is is that if, if he would walk into the court and plead not guilty, then the judge and everybody else would laugh at him. <laughs> He's guilty, and God knows it, and everyone around him knows it, and he knows it, and so he stands there in the back of the service with the knowledge of his own guilt weighing him down, crushing him, and he enters the plea, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And this, dear friends, is how we come to church. Can you imagine? I, I don't know if we should do this one Sunday. When, the, when you come to church and the usher greets you there at the back door to hand you a bulletin, he asks you the question, how do you plea, innocent or guilty? <laughs> but you can imagine that coming to church. And the first words out of our mouths are the answer. I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto thee all my sins and iniquity. I'm guilty. I'm throwing in my lot with a tax collector. I'm a sinner, a lost and condemned person, deserving the Lord's temporal and eternal punishment. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And when we enter this guilty plea, something incredible happens. The devil stands against us, trying to accuse us. But Moses steps away, and Jesus stands next to us as our advocate and friend. And he presents as evidence to the court, not your sin and not your failures, but his blood, his death and resurrection. And this evidence stands. And you are acquitted. You are forgiven. You are set free. Sunday after Sunday, day after day, the judge of the universe hears your case and makes the judgment. He declares you righteous. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And that man, dear friends, that man is you. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. Pastor Ron Holdel's uh, sermon is based upon the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 51 through 69, which reads, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among them say, themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the, fa as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? 
Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who would, be, who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to them, uh, Do you want to also go as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Here is Pastor Ron Hodel and his sermon entitled, Jesus is Offensive. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Well, last week, during Jesus' long sermon on the bread of life, we daydreamed together. I took us and we turned left at the Gospel of John, went back past the Gospels, past the Psalms, all the way back to Kings, almost as far away as we could dream. But even there, we ran into bread a cake of bread baked on a stone baked by God for Elijah. So it seems if you daydream with a text of Scripture as your guide, it's always going to take you back to Jesus. So back to John we go, and Jesus is still preaching his bread of life sermon. But by now... Most of his followers don't like it. Not one bit. They grumble about Jesus and what he's got to say, arguing amongst themselves about his lengthy sermon, but even more about its content. In fact, the majority of his disciples, after hearing this sermon, turned their back and no longer walked with him. Church attendance plummeted. So what did Jesus say in his sermon that was so offensive? And of course, after four Sundays of hearing it, you, you, you know it's obvious now. What rattled everyone's cages was that Jesus claimed to be the living bread come down from heaven. And this living bread is his flesh that he will give for the life of the world. That's quite a statement. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. As I said a couple of weeks ago, because people were questioning what Jesus was saying. Jesus, Jesus took the opportunity to clear things up so that he wouldn't be misunderstood. It's just that he didn't clear things up the way many then or today expected him to clear things up. Five times he says it over and over and over and over and over again. So if you're really listening to him, you will understand him. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, sermons like this are what get preachers fired. If Jesus is serious, then it's time to have a voters' meeting and demand Jesus resign. His preaching is offensive. And he's scattering the flock. Think of it. He started off with a mega church of 5,000 men plus women and children at the beginning of this chapter. And it has only taken him 70 verses to boil the church down to 12. And even one of those 12, the devil will use as an instrument to betray him. And the rest of the disciples will hardly be Faithful church members. A pastor presiding over that kind of decline in church membership needs the left foot of fellowship immediately. 
How are we ever going to meet the budget with this kind of loss? The stats are proof enough that Pastor Jesus has got to go. Maybe even be crucified. Inviting people to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's, that's not just disturbing. That's extremely dangerous. Try explaining that to a little child looking up at you at communion. Did pastor say blood? Pastor Jesus, you've put us in a tough spot. Does Jesus' sermon offend you too? Are his words too hard for you? Too scandalous? Well... This isn't the only sermon Jesus preached. And in other sermons, he said some very bothersome things as well. Let me quote them. Love one another as I have loved you. What you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that goes for women too. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Those are pretty hard words. Do you want to leave too? Many have. Or will you trust him? even when he preaches a sermon that seems to go too far, even when he says something that your reason has trouble with? The answer to this question is a matter of life or death, eternal life or eternal death. Well, Peter, answering for the 12 remaining disciples, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They have come to know. They have grasped hold of the fact that Jesus is the Holy One of God and they have no one else to grasp hold of. They have come to know. That's trust. And trusting what Jesus says is exactly what Jesus gives. The trust Jesus calls for is the trust Jesus gives. Jesus is the sacrifice that atones for the sin of the world. He offers up his body on the cross. He sheds his blood on the tree. He gives his life for your life. His life for the life of the world. He's the substitute sacrifice the vicarious victim, to pay the price for your rebellion against God, to fulfill all that's commanded of you, things you know you should be thinking and saying and doing and don't or won't. For all the law's commands are words too of the one who is the word of God come in flesh and blood to make peace between God and all of us. And his promise is this. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In the sacrament of the altar, Jesus nourishes you with his body and his blood together with the bread and wine. How do you know that? Because he said so. His words of promise are spirit and they are life. Take this bread and eat it. It is my body. 
drink from this cup. It is the New Testament in my blood shed for you, for your forgiveness. Those are words of pure, unadulterated, 200-proof gospel. Jesus' promise to you today at the sacrament is that whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Eternal life. That's Jesus' promise to you. The resurrection of the body. In the words of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is at work in the sacrament giving life. That means raising sinners from the dead. Raising you now and at the resurrection of all flesh at the end or better, at the new beginning. And there's more. For even now, Jesus is not far away. He says, he abides in you and you abide with him. He's in your mouth and in your heart as you eat his body and drink his blood in the sacrament. And that makes your body a temple filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, Paul tells us in our second lesson from Ephesians. Be filled is nothing that you accomplish on your own. It's like when Jesus said to the woman with that issue of blood a few weeks ago, be healed. She didn't dig deep down inside of herself and heal herself. Healing was something that happened to her. Healing was something that Jesus gave to her. And it's the same with being filled. Be filled is nothing you accomplish on your own. Digging deep down and pulling yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps in order to make yourself a great spiritual giant. No. Be filled is what has already happened to you. You are already filled with all the fullness of God. It was given to you as pure gift at the waters of your baptism. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit comes about as you hear Jesus' words and receive in faith what His words promise. After all, His words are spirit and they are life. Do you want to leave too? Jesus asks. And with Peter, we respond in faith. No. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The words of Jesus this morning aren't disturbing words. They are words of great comfort. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Eternal life. Jesus' presence. And there's more. This same Jesus, your Jesus, the one who is your life, who is the word of God come in flesh and blood, He preached other sermons as well. And in those sermons, he tells you, take heart, my son. Take heart, my daughter. Your sins are forgiven. Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For the Son came into the world not to condemn the world but that the world might have life through Him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give unto you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. For behold, I am with you always, 
to the close of the age. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And to end off this light episode of Fighting for the Faith, Pastor Mark Bestuel uh, from Calvary Lutheran in Illinois. And here is the text that he'll be preaching from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 35 through 51, which reads, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Amen, amen. I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Here is Pastor Mark Bestial and his sermon on this text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text, Jesus says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, last week we heard Jesus begin His dialogue with the crowds who were eager for a bread king. And that introductory exchange touched on a host of related topics on which the crowds had become doctrinally confused. Remember, it started with Jesus chastising them for being more worried about earthly bread than about divine blessings that, as he said, the Son of Man will freely give you, for on him the Father has set his seal. That, recall, led in John 6's continuing recording of the dialogue, it led into the need for Jesus to correct the crowds for erroneously thinking that the one on whom the Father had set his seal would tell them what works they must do to be doing the work of God. The one with the Father sealed, though, responded by saying that the one work of God is that he gives faith in Jesus. At this point, the people asked, well, if they were expected to follow this Jesus, then he had better do a sign for them, better than what Moses had done. After all, they credited Moses with giving their forefathers bread from heaven, And Jesus responded with the climactic statement that ended the uh, the reading last week, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That statement is where we pick up the conversation today. And we see Jesus pivot the discussion to now hit the crowds with the full force of the law upon the unbelieving. And he says, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. God grant that these words of Jesus sink deep into our hearts. The Word of God constantly tells us that we see God in the person of Jesus. The Word of God faithfully proclaims to us that our salvation is found in Christ and in Him alone. The Word of God steadfastly calls us to despair of our sinful self-righteousness and cling in desperation to the One in whom all hearts have every reason to believe. And yet some do not believe. Some do not think themselves in need of forgiveness. God grant that we never be found unimpressed by the gospel of Christ. God grant that we never consider ourselves capable of walking away from the gospel and standing in our own righteousness. God grant that Christ must never convict us. I spoke to you the truth, but you do not believe me. 
Only the stubborn and self-righteous would not tremble at such words. Only stone hearts would not crumble if Christ were to need to tell us, you do not take me at my word. Friends, you know where you have at times been stone-hearted. You know where you have at times doubted His Word, been indifferent to it, not seen it as the sole norm and comfort of daily life. How dangerously close you have come to distancing yourself from it, of hearing it but not believing it, of being stubbornly offended by His law or yawning at His gospel. God, grant us repentance that desires nothing but to cherish the law and gospel of the one on whom the Father has set His seal. For if we do not repent, if we do not cherish the Word of God, then we, like the crowds, quickly become outside onlookers in the comforting promise that Jesus has for His church. When He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Notice, friends, how different a gospel this is than what the crowds expected. Perhaps a different gospel than what we, what we sometimes hope for. Christ does not promise to do our will. He doesn't even promise to do his own will. He promises to do the Father's will. And as Christ says elsewhere, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you, give you by grace, give you the kingdom. Nowhere has Jesus said that it is the Father's good will to give you a carefree life. To give you a forever healthy or wealthy life. Or your best life now. Nowhere has Jesus said it is the Father's good will to keep you from ever having to see or experience the ills of this life, nor help you escape the frustrations that sin, that sin brings into daily life. You say, well, Pastor, how, how can you say that? God does not want us to dwell in sin. This is true. And yet, He does not help Adam and Eve escape the consequences of sin, but rather He lays out for them what the consequences of their fall are. Jesus never says that it is the Father's good will to prevent you from the heartache that sin brings into the life of the church. In fact, the Scriptures say the Father will discipline His children, as all good fathers do. All of these things must come to pass, because we sinners have brought them on ourselves. Even as our God promised, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But it is the Father's will that the Son lose nothing that the Father has given Him, but raise it up on the last day. The Father's will points us not to this life, but rather to look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. As Jesus continues in our text, He says, This is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Consider how Jesus emphasizes the point. Faith in Christ does not lead to bread kings and full bellies. It does not lead to amazing manna from the sky or great wonders that show God's glory. Faith in Christ points to and leads to the resurrection. I will raise him up on the last day, he says. There is Jesus' promise to you. Nowhere does he promise that you won't suffer. In fact, elsewhere... In this world you will have great tribulation, Jesus says. Nowhere does he promise you you will not breathe your last. In fact, though he die, yet shall he live, he says of mankind. Nowhere does Christ promise you an empty cross. Rather, he promises you an empty tomb. Your tomb will be empty because your cross he has occupied. Therefore, Jesus keeps us focused on the resurrection. He cares for for us today while constantly pointing us forward to the last day. This is the Christian's life. 
yesterday and tomorrow are not defined by today. Just the opposite is true. The present is defined by the past's occupied cross and the future's empty tomb. I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus, the Lord over life and death, promises you. Now at these things, the Jews grumble. How much this reminds us of the children of Israel who grumbled against the very God who delivered them from Egypt and under the promised land. But they would not trust Him. And so they grumbled. Their descendants grumbled too. God forbid that we be found to be the spiritual descendants of these grumblers. Where we have grumbled at His gospel of His occupied cross for our empty tomb, God be merciful and grant us repentant hearts. For where we will not repent, then Jesus says to us, as He said to the Jews before us, do not grumble among yourselves. Of course, what else can the faithless do but grumble? If they will not rejoice in the one gospel of truth, there is no other gospel in which to truly rejoice. And so their self-deception will end in despair and they will grumble not just against God, but against His Son, against the church, pastors, the whole world, because they will not believe the gospel of Christ. But though they cannot help but grumble in their faithlessness, such does not lessen Christ's word. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There it is again. I will raise him up on the last day. The third mention of it in our text. Friends, the gospel does not end in this life. It carries us beyond this life into the life of the world to come. If your view of daily life, of Calvary and your brothers and sisters in Christ, of your entire life, your view of your entire life is not defined by the future glory that awaits us, your present suffering in this life will seem insurmountable so that the devil will convince you that Christ is no bread of life but only a bread king and that only if Jesus actually cares about you. And yet Jesus insists, I will raise up the faithful on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What did Jesus just say? Did you hear it? What is needed to come to Christ? What is needed for resurrection on the last day? He said that one must be taught by God. As Jesus quotes from the prophets, they will all be taught by God. He says, that's how you are taught. Speak, O Lord, your servant listens, we say. You see, the preaching and teaching of the doctrine of Christ is fundamental to the life of the church. If one will not gladly receive the teaching, if his itching ears have no use for the preaching, that one will fail to hear God's own teaching of Christ, earning and delivering the benefits of the cross, that one will fail to hear and learn why the sacraments are so important. He will fail to understand why he desperately needs the gift of these sacraments, the forgiveness of sins therein. He will fail to lift his eyes to the horizon and to the resurrection of the dead. In order to be kept in faith, friends, one must be taught the doctrine of Christ. In fact, one must be taught by God himself. So says Christ. And when Jesus makes that claim, he underscores the divine weight of law and gospel preaching. After all, he continues on that no one has seen the Father except the Son himself, and yet no one having seen him, he doesn't hesitate to promise that you still know him, and you are still taught by him. For as Jesus tells the office of the Holy Ministry, it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Friends, such is divine invitation for you to consider that God himself is your teacher. If your favorite actor or athlete or president was going to be speaking each Sunday, would you not clear your schedule, set three alarm clocks, and ensure that you and your family and all your neighbors were here to receive such word? How much more ought we cherish this word because it is not merely man's word about God, but by Christ's own testimony, it is God's word to you. 
He thinks so much of his doctrine that he himself takes time to be, if you will, the invisible preacher in the pulpit, behind the sinful man in the pulpit, and to be the teacher in the classroom. Therefore, by faith, one ought to see, as C.F.W. Walther once said, that preaching is the pinnacle of the divine service. A Christian only cherishes the sacraments and the forgiveness of sins because he is first taught about them and pointed to them by the preaching. If the preaching does not point him there, the sacraments soon become simply rote customs, works that he thinks he is doing for God. But where the preaching of law and gospel is right, as Paul tells the young pastor, rightly divide the word of truth, where the preaching of law and gospel is right, then, as Jesus says, everyone, including you, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, comes to me. And now Jesus' teaching comes full circle. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And for just a split second, he leaves that word believes without any sort of a direct object to hold on to, almost to get us all to ask, well, whoever believes what? And then he drops the hammer. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. They're followers of Moses. There is what Moses can do for you. They're chasers of bread kings. There is the goal of your pursuit for your best life now. The manna that silenced their grumbling and filled their bellies ultimately achieved nothing. They died. The manna that silences your grumbling and fills your bellies ultimately will achieve nothing. You will die. Friends, if anyone ever pictured Jesus only speaking gently with sort of an I'm everyone's best friend smirk on his face, Forget it. He lays down the bare truth. Seek after manna, even that temporally given from heaven, and you will still die. There is only one bread that can give you life forever. Eat of him. Feast on this Jesus, his word, his truth, his cross, his merits, his benefits. And you will not die, but you will live forever. Live forever how? Not the way we have come to understand the term forever in English, as if to say nothing will ever change endlessly. Rather, forever is more woodenly translated from the Greek, into the age. What does that sort of sound like? It sounds like Christ's threefold promise. I will raise him up on the last day. How does the bread from heaven give you eternal life? Through the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The life of the world to come. Or as Jesus says it, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Yes, for your eternal life, for the goal of your pursuit, which is to be raised up on the last day, feast on the bread from heaven, who is the life of the world. He who gives for the life of the world is very flesh. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. What would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>